Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. In today's episode, we're discussing taking risks again as we come out of lockdown despite ongoing community transmission of COVID-19 and ever-rising infections globally. In the UK, we've grown used to ever more complicated rules on what we can and can't do. We'll be hearing from epidemiologist Julia Marcus about what the unintended consequences of this abstinence approach might be. We'll also ask Carol Little, a patient activist, what she made of her latest shielding letter. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor at the BMJ. Hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a clinical editor for the BMJ based in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And I'm Navjoit Lada, a GP and clinical editor based in London, England. So today we're talking about coming out of lockdown and how we and our patients are going to adapt to it, in particular how we deal with that risk of COVID when it, you know, it hasn't gone away completely um, and yet everyday life is, is seemingly resuming. Um, I've heard a lot of commentators say things like, you know, it was really easy to get people to lock down and stay at home, but, you know, it's not going to be so easy to get people out again. Uh, do you agree with that, Navjoit? Yeah, I completely agree with that. The, the messaging around staying at home and being scared of the virus was so effective that now that we seem to be kind of coming out of that phase in the UK, at least, um, I, I'm, I, I don't, I think those messages are still very much kind of, um, absorbed in and hard to kind of it's hard to kind of not feel anxious when you go outside and that's you know I'm saying that as someone who um, you know isn't in any of the kind of clinically vulnerable categories and I feel you know very conscious of um, my proximity to people my safety the safety of others when I go out yeah yeah and what must it be like if you've been told you're extremely vulnerable it must be, be no exactly and having had one of those um, letters that, you know, outlines all the reasons why you shouldn't go out and how you're at more risk and, you know, the, the um, risk of morbidity or mortality and all of those things. I think how to kind of unpick that and come back from that now, I think that needs a lot of thought. And also having some level of data and evidence and information mm. to kind of reassure people, which frankly, I, I don't know that we have yeah. very well. I mean, I, frankly, this sounds like such a novel concept that the vast majority of people would be paying so much attention to public health messaging that they would genuinely have concerns about going outside again. Mm. Um, obviously, there are pockets um, in the United States where people have taken messaging around masks and lockdown very seriously. And I know people in New York City in particular and some the rest of New York State um, has certainly taken these messages on board. Um, New York has continued to have a decline in its cases, has continued to see less patients coming in with COVID-19. But, you know, um, in the rest of the country, that's certainly not the case. We've seen indoor presidential rallies um, with lots of people not wearing masks in states where the coronavirus is surging. Mm. And what strikes me about this is that people in different cities, let alone in different countries, are in such different places in this pandemic. 
that it can be challenging to understand as doctors, but also as lay people, what different messages we're hearing from different news sources and different places mean for our realities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And most of those messages have, to me at least, have felt like they're they're using fear as the, the, the driving force to, to get people to do what you know, governments want us to do, you know, for good reason. Um, but as we heard in episode two from Iona Heath, you know, fear, fear isn't necessarily always a, a good thing. There are unintended consequences from fear, aren't there? Um, and we see that with medicalization and the sort of suffering that people um, experience as a result of that. And after it. Yeah, and I think fear can be a kind of deliberate tactic, but fear can also be a result of um, you know, the anxiety that you might feel when you don't have confidence in um, mm. the advice that you're being given or that you, you know, or that you have this kind of palpable sense. I think as we do here in the UK, that there isn't a coherent strategy about how to, um, how we reopen and go about life um, safely. Mm. And I think I think that that's where the public health messaging, again, is so important that you can get a sense of that coherence and what the long term plan is um and so yeah so i think you're right fear fear used as that kind of tactic matters but then fear also is a consequence of of just not feeling confident in what's going on i think what part of what makes this so interesting when we think about fear and messaging is that maybe for the first time what we're actually talking about is fear related to other people Right. We're used to fear in terms of public health messaging being about our own personal behaviors and what that means for our health. So like, don't smoke. You're going to get lung cancer. Um, Don't eat sugary, high, you know, high fat foods because then you're going to get diabetes. Whereas for this, um, for COVID-19, so much of the experience has been wear a mask to protect other people and stay inside to protect other people. And that brings a whole new slant to this. And certainly in a place like the United States, which is known for its kind of individualist ethos, that really brings a different perspective compared, you know, when it comes to a disease that depends on communal thinking. So let's move on a bit t- towards our, the topic of our first interview. Um, in my experience, people who try to scare you also like to tell you what to do. Um, and this continues to be the strategy, I think, of, of most governments. Um, and in the UK, we've got these really complicated rules about what we should and shouldn't do and, you know, on what date we can do them. And, you know, I, I haven't heard much in terms of well, what the alternative strategy might be, but that's something you, you looked at with your interviewee, Jenny. Yeah, I talked with Julia about this idea of quote-unquote abstinence-only health messaging, wherein the message of just stay home, period, without offering any alternatives or way of thinking about what types of activities might be higher risk for coronavirus compared to what types of activities might have acceptable levels of risk. It was a great conversation. Let's have a listen. I am Julia Marcus. I'm an epidemiologist and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. You wrote this article in The Atlantic 
um, called Quarantine Fatigue is Real. And I wonder if you could just um, tell our listeners kind of a summary of what you say in that article for those who haven't had the joy of reading it yet. Sure. Well, first I'll say I am an HIV prevention researcher. So I I came at this from that perspective. And I started to see some parallels between what was playing out with the public health messaging around the coronavirus and what was happening in the early days of the HIV epidemic. I, I think what was happening made sense in early March in the sense that the messaging was really to just stay home. Um, and I think that's what we needed. And I think that was effective. Um, but I, I think we also were hoping that would be for a few weeks. And now here we are months later realizing this is going to go on for many months, if not years. And so we have to think about how to adapt our public health messaging to be sustainable. And in the early days of HIV, similarly, gay men were being told, just don't have sex. And that was not going to be a sustainable public health message in the way that any abstinence-only messaging tends to fail. And so, you know, at the time, the community came together with an expert, um, a physician, and came up with a safer sex manual to help people figure out how they could have sex while keeping their risk as low as possible. And I think right now what we need is public health guidelines that can support people in having some social contact while keeping their risk as low as possible. And if we just tell people, stay home, stay six feet apart, wash your hands, and we don't give them any other guidance, we're missing an opportunity to support them in choosing lower risk activities than, you know, what they may have done before. But, um, you know, maybe not zero risk, but allowing them to live their lives in a way that's sustainable. Um, Thank you. Yes. And that makes so much sense. I so appreciated the analogy that you were drawing there to the abstinence-only movement. And while we don't have decades of research necessarily on how to prevent coronavirus infection, we do have decades of research on um, the efficacy of abstinence-only programs. And that is not great. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not only ineffective, it can, can actually make things worse. We often see higher teen pregnancy rates, for example, with abstinence-only messaging, um, because people, when they do choose to have sex, lack the tools to protect themselves. And could you see that happening with coronavirus as well, that in fact, the messaging of just stay home could backfire? Yeah, I, I am... I think we could see it backfire in several ways. One is that people don't have right now, I think, a clear understanding of the spectrum of risk. They, I think, to some extent, people are focused on things that are very low risk, like obsessively disinfecting groceries, for example, and maybe less concerned about things that are higher risk, like gathering indoors with a group of people. And so the first step is giving people a very clear sense of what to worry about and what what not to worry about. Um, But I think also if we, if, if we don't, um, if we if we keep our messaging very all or nothing, we may also stigmatize anything that people do that's not 100% risk reduction. So you can imagine, you know, um, all the shaming that's been going on on social media 
turning into people actually taking their socializing indoors where it becomes higher risk or even not wanting to disclose that they attended an event if a contact tracer is trying to track people down. So there are ways that our lack of nuance in public health messaging really plays out in, in um, you know, in real health outcomes. You know, how can we deconstruct rules in a way that makes sense to people? Because when you change that kind of broad, like um, blunt edge message from just stay home to, okay, you can do, you can meet in the garden and stay several feet apart, or you can do this now, you're introducing so many gray areas. Um, How can we maintain clarity as we deconstruct those rules? Yeah, I think what's important here is to distinguish between giving people recommendations and giving people guidance. So I want to be clear that I'm not necessarily saying that the U.S. or even, um, you know, the U.S. as a whole or even certain regions are ready for recommendations around increased social contact. What I want to acknowledge is that people are already making decisions every day about expanding their social circles. And so, you know, this isn't about saying, uh, go have a dinner party, just make sure it's with fewer than 10 people and you do it outside. It's about saying, if you're going to have a dinner party, here are the safest ways to do it. So that those people who are already making those choices and who we know are going to make those choices have opportunities to reduce their risk. If we just say, stay home and don't have a dinner party, we miss that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and at the same time, it's so tempting to be able to say to people, yes, you can do this activity or no, you can't. Yeah, I think people really want to hear clear answers. And, you know, I've done a couple call-in radio shows in the last couple weeks where people have just endless questions about scenarios in their personal lives. And they, they really want a yes or no answer. And it may be unsatisfying, but I think an answer we can give is if you're choosing between these two options, here's the lower risk one. And if you choose that lower risk one, here are further ways to to reduce any potential harms. And I think that's the kind of harm reduction guidance we need to see is, you know, this is your safest option, being absolutely clear about that. And then here's your next safest option. And if you choose that option, here are ways you can reduce harms all the way up to the highest risk options that we hope people won't choose, but we know some ultimately will. And we've seen or read about um, or had patient experiences in the past couple months where we are being asked to individualize the rules um, and specifically making trade-offs for one health condition compared to another. So I'll give you an example, um, a shielded patient or an, a patient who's widely acknowledged to be at high risk of serious complications of coronavirus, um, sobbing um, on the phone to her GP because she can't go outside. She's been so socially isolated. And it's almost like we're asking ourselves, do at what cost are we protecting you from this potential infectious complication Yeah, I think it's such an important question. And it's one that comes up a lot in infectious disease. Um, You know, I work with all these ID doctors and epidemiologists, and we tend to get very 
reductive, I think, sometimes about disease prevention, where our goal becomes, um, you know, so narrowly focused on preventing new cases of this disease and preventing severe illness and preventing death, which are all, I mean, that really should be our goal right now, but we don't want it to be at the expense of overall health. We, we become um, myopic about this. And I think that for people who are suffering, particularly older people, you know, who I, I, I see some of this in my life as well, people who are older and nearing the end of their lives and wondering, is my life even going to be worth living if I can't see my grandkids? Then it's like, let's really think about this in terms of overall health and risks versus benefits and helping people make choices that will promote their health rather than just prevent disease. I completely agree. And that brings me to the last point I wanted to touch on with you, which is going back to um, the way that people have been stigmatized or shamed for their behaviors um, in this period of time. And, you know, we're all very well familiar with the incriminating photos of students on spring break crowding the beaches in Florida. And, you know, there's a long legacy, again, with um, HIV when it comes to stigma and discrimination. We know that stigma and discrimination results in more infections and worse outcomes than the reverse. Yeah, I think the stigma is, and the shaming, it's a, it's one of the side effects of the abstinence-only messaging. And, you know, what happens is we say, uh, stay home, and then we don't talk about anything else. So we end up with this binary, this false binary, where, where it's like, staying home is the safe, responsible thing to do. And anything you do besides that is irresponsible and shameworthy. And, you know, of course, there's a range of things you can do that are not staying home, like walking in the park, um, which people have been shamed for. There's also having a crowded pool party with a, at a swim up bar, which people have been shamed for. And of course, that is higher risk. Um, but the reality is in any of those situations, shaming doesn't generally have the effect that we wanted to have. And as you were saying, this is, this is something we've really learned from HIV, where stigma has become a, a, one of the main drivers of the HIV epidemic. It doesn't change, it doesn't make risk behavior go away when you shame people. If you shame people for having condomless sex, it doesn't make them stop having condomless sex. It just makes them not tell you about it. And now we have gay men who won't disclose their sexual behavior to their healthcare providers because they're afraid of being shamed. And so they don't get HIV testing. They don't get STI testing. They don't get PrEP. And and then they get HIV. And I mean, we see this over and over again. It's um, it's such a loss. And and how would that play out with the coronavirus? You can imagine people who are shamed for having a picnic in a park, you know, who get shamed on Instagram. They may have that um, that party indoors next time where it's actually higher risk and they may not want to tell public health officials, if there is an outbreak, they may not want to say I was at that party because they're scared. Um, so, and I'll say one other thing about the shaming, which is that I think that it distracts from what really matters. I think when we place blame on individuals, those individual behaviors are such a small contribution to this overall pandemic. 
And yes, we need collective action. And yes, every individual is responsible to some extent for doing their part in terms of social distancing and masks. Um, and we need to try to inspire that collective action. Um, but where are we seeing the most transmissions? It's not like, um, you know, pe the people who are having the picnic in the park and not wearing masks. It's in it's in prisons and it's in nursing homes and it's in people who can't stay home from work because they don't have paid sick leave and they need a paycheck. And those are failures of the government and, you know, institutions, failures to protect individuals. It's not, you know, a it's it, the blame does not lie on those individual people. And when we when we shame people, not only do we end up with worse health outcomes, we're also distracting from where accountability really should be in this situation. And maybe that's a bit more political than <laughs> what I should be saying. But um, but I think, you know, I, I think it, it, the shaming doesn't really reflect where the problem is. It was really, really good to talk with her. I left that conversation feeling, number one, educated, but also so impressed mm. with how on point and just like really good at, I don't know, talking to the things that really yeah. mattered. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it, she was just lovely to speak with. Yeah. 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 Uh, every point. Yeah, that really came across. Yeah. Go on, that's right. <laughs> no, I was going to say that really came across. She really, um, it was so thoughtful. And I think, um, you know, there's a level of maturity in what she was saying that I don't think we've seen in the communications messaging, certainly here in the UK from, you know, she talks about the government, that, that kind of government and institutional sort of, I guess, just lack of treating people like grown-ups in terms of the communication that was very resonant. Mm -hmm. And that last point, yeah, particularly was... Um really rings true, you know, with all the headlines about people going to the beach and how terrible it is. And, you know, there, there's there's something in that, isn't there? But it, it, we're not talking about, like, the institutional and government failures that, that are probably, like you said, that far more important. When she said that, the thing that came to my head was, you know, these um, institutional problems, like not having enough PPE, right? And, like, allowing our healthcare workers to get sick, to become infected, to spread it to other patients while trying to take care of them. Um, and then, of course, there's that that other lens on it, which is which she mentioned, too, is, you know, we're not protecting our essential workers and we haven't given people, you know, leave from their jobs. We haven't facilitated people working from home if they work in certain scenarios. We haven't given, you know, um, workers at nursing homes, PPE to adequate degrees. And that's where we've seen some of the most deadly um, outbreaks. Mm. The thing I loved about the interview was really making it clear that um, that abstinence or, or, or the effect of abstinence leads to the stigmatization, which leads to higher risk behaviour, um, and that was that was so nicely laid out, wasn't it? Yeah, I hadn't drawn that parallel actually between abstinence-only kind of health messaging and actually that more nuanced um, appreciation of what are the high risk activities and and how can you you know um, use as an individual weigh that up within your own personal circumstance and make an informed decision. And I think that's such a useful analogy, actually, when you're thinking about well, what would be a good and effective way to communicate um, about this. 
Yeah, listening again, it's interesting because I think there's now this almost this tension where on the one hand we're saying, you know, individuals have to take responsibility for their own behavior and social distancing. And on the other hand, still like recognizing that that's important and giving people the tools to make decisions around what behaviors are acceptable levels of risk for them, while at the same time recognizing those bigger structural problems, um, you know, protecting people in in meatpacking factories and providing protections um, to to different people to um, to keep them safe. It's 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 a really interesting tension there between doing things on an individual level and then on a community level. Yeah, I think there are two things that needs. That needs those tools that you're referring to where you're giving people the kind of accurate information that they can use to do that. But then it also needs to be part of a broader kind of coherent uh, strategy, coherent and effective strategy. So, you know, also we're seeing in a lot of uh, places, uh, well, I'm referring to the UK again, but I think this applies to the US as well, where, you know, that there's this easing of lockdown that's happening without the effective tech test and trace kind of capabilities in place and so I think that bigger picture you can't lose sight of that this is all kind of part of the same you know same approach Mm -hmm. again listening now to this interview it seems even more important considering events in the past month you know we we're talking about engaging in activities that are low risk and on the one hand, we have, you know, these incredibly powerful protests for Black Lives Matter in the streets of so many cities in the United States. And you, when you see pictures of all of those protests, people are almost always wearing masks. Some of the most powerful media images and some of the most powerful photos coming from the protests have been, you know, people wearing masks and, and holding their fists up, you know, engaging in this really amazing um, civic action. And then you see these kind of like massive indoor gatherings in support of a particularly heinous political figure and where no one is wearing masks and you're indoors. And it's just striking to me how different, you know, if you look at those activities from a public health lens, you know, it's just like decision making completely gone awry. And I feel sad about the way that mask wearing in particular has been politicized in some places, whereas in other countries, and I see this in Cambodia too, it's not a political issue. It's a communal issue. It's a, it's a public health and safety issue. It comes back to that tension that you were talking about before about doing, you know, the weighing the individual with this with the societal mm-hmm. and collective good. And I think that's a particular tension in the US. I guess another tension is that between you know, the the benefit you're trying to provide to the patient in saying don't go out and actually the harms that causes and, and that's the, the, the sobbing patient that you, you mentioned there in, in the uh, interview, Jenny. Um you know, we, we, and and I think the word she used was it's it's myopic, and and we need to look more broadly at, at the broader effects. Um, yeah, the kind of health promotion and uh, and preventing disease. So um, Julia said, I thought it was quite striking that it's about promoting health and not just preventing disease, which I think will resonate with a lot of um, our patients. Yeah. 
So shall we move on to um, our second interview then, which is with a patient and with a patient who's been you know, living through this as a, someone who's been shielding. Um, if I just uh, give a bit more of an overview about what's been happening in the UK, um, we've had 2.2 million extremely vulnerable people uh, have been shielding since lockdown and that's sort of not seeing anybody getting food delivered uh, and so on. Uh, from the 6th of July, they have been told they can meet outside in groups of six, um, up to six, if, or if they're living alone, they can form a bubble with another household. And then actually from the 1st of August, shielding will be stopped, uh, although food and volunteer services will still be available to them. And I think from a GP point of view, you know, we've we've been dealing a lot with the sort of mess of shielding because a lot of it's been, well, it has been a centralised process from what, or certainly hasn't involved the GPs very much, uh, with so many people getting the wrong letters, you know, being told to shield when they shouldn't, uh, lots of people not being advised that they are very high risk when when they are, um, and so many questions and sort of fears from patients. So, um, you know, I think my experience of it has been, you know, it's it's not been great. So I spoke to Carol Liddell about her experiences of being shielded and what she's going to do next. That interview will come up in a moment, uh, but first a word from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medical legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Let's go back to our interview with Carol Liddell. I'm a COPD patient. I have severe, borderline, very severe COPD. Um, I'm a patient representative on the NACAP panel. I'm also a patient representative on the Task Force for Lung Health at the British Lung Foundation. Um, and basically, I tweet a lot and I speak to lots of patients. I have lots of involvements on forums, mm. um, things like that. And I hope to give a view from the patient point of view. I'm yeah. very much patient-centred. Good. Well, and, and I think just a person to, to talk to you about um, the topic of this, this podcast, which is about risk of coronavirus and some of the advice that has been given to patients who are maybe at higher risk, um, and 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 also, I suppose, what patients are actually doing with that advice. Um, but but maybe, um, can you tell us a bit more about your situation? How's that experience been? Um, to be perfectly honest, Tom, um, if you have very severe COPD, your yeah. your uh, awareness of risks to infections is is actually pretty high. So you're pretty good at shielding yourself um, at winter. Um, or from people that might be infectious anyway 
because yeah. um, any infection is a risk, isn't it? Mm. Um, so we took the pragmatic view that we would um, that we would take every precaution, and even prior to shielding, um, winter time I've always used hand gel. I've always used a face covering, um, a very lightweight scarf. Yeah. I think this is something, a conversation that GPs should be having in the first instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that had happened, I think it would have been less of a shock for a lot of people because some people have really struggled um, to deal with the shielding and some of the measures. Yeah. And um, yeah, and, and of course, because of, of experiences have varied greatly and it sounds like, um, well, what have patients been telling you? There's a mixture, really. Yeah. Some people have really, really struggled and they have um, broken the shielding to some degree, yeah. but only very, very slightly. What they've done is they've taken the decision to go out really early in the morning, walk and exercise so that they can completely avoid people. Yeah. Um, I think this has been reflected recently in a survey. Okay. Um, but... Uh, on the whole, most people have, you know, taken that decision yeah. themselves anyway. Yeah. I, I would say a third of the people I speak to have actually taken the same decision as myself and started shielding earlier. Right. Not waiting for their letter. Yeah. And what did you make of that letter? Um... It was very impersonal. Mm. It was actually quite, quite scary but also it lacked an awful lot. I think it would have been better if it had been more personal from, you know, from your actual GP rather than right. coming from, from government. Yeah. With the link to be able to talk to perhaps your, your surgery nurse, you know, to talk through any concerns yeah. straight away to ally any fears. To be honest, the first letter in comparison comparison to the um to the second letter we've just received about yeah. the ending of the shielding um was a lot better this right. second letter yeah well let's talk about um, the second letter. and actually that's that's i suppose what i really want to to focus on today is yeah so you've had the second letter what did it say it's, it's gosh very very basically it's saying more or less it's all over forget about it just go out and and do what you want from the first of august that's how it comes across it's very right. impersonal yeah um it's a lot of people have said i felt quite safe in this bubble and i knew what i was doing what steps i could take and that i could take some responsibility for myself um look after my mental health and take baby steps yeah and this one feels like the bubbles burst and they've just pulled the rug out from underneath me. And so will you be going out, doing what you like, <laughs> getting, on with, getting on with it when it comes to August the 1st? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. There's, there's just way too much um, infection out there. The rates of infection are just way, way too high mm. at the moment. It's still there. And the minute um, people start going out, which they're going to from yeah. July, already you look out of the window, ordinary people are just doing more or less what they did before. Um, yeah. It's terrifying, Tom, it really mm -hmm. is. Um, from somebody that's used to taking you know, um, care of their own, 
their own health and who practices self-management and trying to minimize um, exacerbations as much as I can. Mm. Um, it's terrifying. Mm. So, so how do you find out about the risks and then weigh them up? How might the advice be different? I think the advice would be that you, you know, it needs to be more joined up with your GPs or your local um, respiratory teams or healthcare mm, teams mm. to give you more on the ground for your local area advice. Um, infection levels are extremely low in London, but they're not in certain areas. Yeah. So I think that needs to be more, much, much more localised. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking back to, I know you said that you're, you won't be doing what was in the letter. What, what do you think the first thing you do do or what will, what will your next steps be when when you feel the time is is right i will hopefully be able to walk down to my daughters um and spend a day with my daughter and my grandsons probably just sit in the garden and have a really good chat a really good yeah. natter because although you talk every we talk every day we text every day there's nothing like just sitting together and you know a coffee maybe even a glass of wine, you know, but uh, yeah, family's really important or a good friend. That last bit made me cry. <laughs> it's really quite moving. You know, saying that she feels like she's had the rug pulled out from mm. underneath her mm. and sort of just been left adrift now. Mm. I think, um, yeah yeah sorry you'll have to come back to me because i'm feeling a bit emotional so so tom how was how like did you get a good sense of how carol's doing yeah um i think she has um she lives with her husband who's who's you know also has health problems and um yeah i think she she came across like she was doing all right yes but um but but more this well has been doing you know well throughout lockdown I so I can't really speak for her but but um in other parts of the interview that came across but but rather that that the next step is is going to actually perhaps be be more well she said it there didn't she more terrifying the bubble's been burst and and it's terrifying and she was saying about but what's terrifying is the behavior of other people and people not sticking to the rules and um and I've seen that with other patients is um of mine is you know, people are being told to do one thing and, and they're not doing it. And and it's so scary, isn't it? Yeah. I can't imagine what that must be like mm. to be struggling to stay inside and feeling, you know, lonely and disconnected from your support system. But then to look outside and see that no one's wearing masks or that people have seemingly gone back to normal without you just yeah mm. well I thought Carol had some good um suggestions for you know how you know Tommy you asked about what would what do you think the next steps would be or what would make you feel um more reassured yeah. and um you know she mentioned you know that having GPs be more central to the advice going forward and being able to have a sense of what was happening locally. Um, I mean, that to me seems so key mm. that, you know, um, and so I don't know if you have thoughts about what, what, how can GPs kind of support our patients who are going through this? 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, an editorial in the BMJ a, f- a few weeks ago from um, George Davy Smith and uh, David Spiegelhalter when they were talking about um, shielding and how we might move forward with shielding. And um, they were talking about you know the things you need to have a conversation about this. Um, you need to know what the local prevalence of COVID-19 is, because I think without that, we've never really had that. Um uh, you, 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 and, and that's what Carol uh, was saying there, wasn't it? Um, then you need to know, you know, rough, you know, I guess roughly for that patient what their risk is if they catch it, um, which we do know, um, and that's roughly what your risk of dying in the next year is. You know, that, I don't know if you've seen those graphs where from from David Spiegelhalter, which which show that um, that's the case. Um, but also, you need to know about the patient. I think they call it the sort of appetite for risk. You know, some some people really don't want to take any risks here and and I think it's entirely reasonable that they can remain shielded uh, and other people you know have sort of almost had enough and just um, are willing and want to take more risk than they're being almost allowed to so those are, that's how I'd sort of frame a conversation I think with a patient right now Jenny so I think what you say about appetite for risk is really interesting and which we can unpick a little bit it's not as if a patient necessarily chooses how risk averse they're going to be. I think people get pushed into this situation. You know, like when I was um, talking with Julia and then, you know, even in for my own family, for my own parents, I remember saying to them, you know, for how many months is it going to be acceptable, even though both of them are high risk for um, severe COVID disease for how long is it going to be acceptable to just not see your grandkids? I, I don't think it's, I don't know that it's people kind of deciding how risk averse to be. I think it's more, you know, you reach a certain point after a period of social isolation where you're desperate for mm. human contact and you almost get forced into reconsidering your acceptable level of risk right you get you get put into this place of desperation i think Interesting, yeah yeah i think i mean i agree with you and i guess again this harks back to the earlier interview with um julia where she talks about you know the sustainability of um the the approach really um of shielding i mean there's something to you know there, there are some questions about was shielding the right approach in the first place um and you know thinking about um, you know, if, if we're asking people to, you know, shut themselves away at home for like weeks on end, you know, I think it is, um, it behooves us to sort of ask, is that the best strategy? Is that the, the best way to keep people safe? Because, you know, the, the sustainability of it, I think, is is the key question. Mm. Um, you know, I'm struck by on um, bmj.com, we've had a number of um articles about shielding and um and particularly patient perspectives as well on on what shielding's been like and there was one um from Kynwen Giles that was published on June the 17th and it was really um gave you know gave gives a good insight into what that experience of shielding I thought had had been like for her and also what she thought needs to happen next and she says um, I'm just going to read a little bit out here she says if I'm honest, I feel like the shielding guidelines assume that those with serious underlying health conditions are of little value to society. What other explanation can there be for telling people that they have to stay inside for weeks on end 
and distance inside their homes from their family members, while making no reference to how to weigh up the potential risks and consequences of shielding, while also having to work or care for children, or indeed caring for someone of any age. The guidance assumes that we are the cared for, not the carers, and certainly not people who are economically and socially active or valuable. And she goes on to talk about, you know, if as the lockdown restrictions ease, you know, this is an opportunity for the people who develop guidelines to really have a, develop a greater understanding of who the vulnerable are and the complexities of um, people's lives and have some grown-up conversations about, um, you know, enabling people to live well while also protecting their their health. And I think that is really key. That really needs to needs to happen. And I'm sure there is a role for the GP in, in all of that mm. as well. But I feel what's missing is that quality of information that we need in, in order to be able to support yeah. our people about you know what's happening locally, a bit more information about, you know, we have a, we have some idea about comorbidities and um, risks um, of who's more severely affected by COVID. But, I, I, you know, nothing really that you can sort of say with any sort of degree of yeah. precision or certainty to a patient. Um, and so in the face of all that uncertainty, <laughs> I think it comes back to this. We need a kind of broader, coherent testing, tracing strategy. But do you think well. from the the GP point of view, yeah, we haven't had much to do with shielding apart from sort of unpicking some of the mistakes of, of, the, of the, how it was set up. Um, but we could we have done more? I feel like you know a lot of, a lot of GPs have proactively decided to to contact their patients who are shielding. I think a lot, maybe even most of us have done that, or even all of us. But um, when we're talking this through, I'm, I'm just wondering how. how Maybe it's about shared decision making, or sort of, you know, talking through what the patient wants to do, rather than calling them up to tell them not to, not to go out. Do you think we've 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 got that wrong? I think certainly some of those tenants of shared decision making have been absent, haven't mm. they? There's a lot of these decisions have been taken in a way, um, which you, I, I think at the outset of a pandemic you can understand. You know, there's a need to respond quickly, and often you're making, you know, just thinking from a sort of government approach yeah. or a senior leadership approach, you're making decisions kind of with the best available information. But as time evolves, I think. Um, as you learn more, then I think that, yeah, the, that those kind of principles are important about, you know, the, the, that kind of shared decision-making principle. But what that means for GPs, I mean, I feel like GPs have been put in a really difficult situation. I, I don't know how much GPs can, can what, what they can do in the face of, kind of national messaging to do things differently, um, other than just try and pick up the pieces and be there for their patients um, as best they can. One thing that she said um, that she said a bit more in, in some of the, the rest of the interview that we didn't hear um, was, you know, she, she felt that pe- people should be encouraged how to take baby steps rather than this, hey, August the first, go out and you know, kind of rejoin society. That mm-hmm. that given the anxiety and and this is going to be such a change that um, that she'd like to ha- you know talk with a nurse or doctor or a local specialist about what the sort of baby steps might be the, to to return to normality. I thought that was quite a good uh, sort of practical tip that we could take forward. Yeah. Do you think the guidance then could be more kind of granular, I suppose, in terms of what those baby steps might be? You know, the letters that mm. people are getting or the PHE guidance? I don't know. It's I suppose it's hard to include all, all, um, 
all possibilities or all eventualities, isn't it? Uh, and maybe that's that's the role that we can play um, without being too critical of the guidance. Yeah, maybe that's the distinction that Julia was trying to draw between guidelines and yeah. recommendations that, you know, we want the vast majority of people to do something and behave this way, but then our individual recommendations um, will hopefully take more of their personal circumstances into account. Mm. I just think it's it, all, this this conversation um, has really made me reflect on how some people must feel like pushed into these situations. Um, and what you read, Navdrait, was so powerful. Um, and others, you know, are taking agency to shield themselves, right? Like Carol, I was really impressed the way that she was like, we're good at shielding anyways. We do this, you know, and, and people have, you know, varying degrees of experience and comfort with that. Um, and it really does need to be on this individual level. And I, I guess I would just say that I'm just worried about people. <laughs> like, I'm just worried uh, about all the, you can imagine all the different permutations of traumas that people are having. Um, there was this other article in The Atlantic um, on May 28 uh, called I Miss My Grandchildren by this writer, Robin Morantz Hennig. And she wrote about the trauma of basically being you know, in this moment where the pandemic highlights to you what's really important in your life, but she couldn't be seeing her grandchildren, which had clearly been the most important things to her. And she talks about the guilt of what her grand of worrying of what her grandchildren think of her now that her grandparents, now that their grandparents aren't in the picture anymore. Like, do her grandchildren think that we've just left them will what what will they think of her own lovability if the weeks go on and on and we're still not there and what does the younger one make of all this she's only two and can't possibly understand why grandma and grumps have changed from real world people who held and nuzzled her into in and then becoming into screenshots just two-dimensional as the characters on sesame street just totally heartbreaking. <laughs> it is heartbreaking. So that's the end of the podcast. Thank you to Julia and Carol, and thank you as always to Childcare, who lets us use their excellent music. Our next episode, in two weeks' time, will look at racism in healthcare. If you want to make sure you don't miss it, just subscribe to us on your podcast app. In the meantime, take a look at the reading list on racism on our programme notes. We want to embed conversations about racism throughout Deep Breath In. So to end today's podcast, our Deep Breath Out is a poem from patientvoices.org.uk. The poet's name is Sam Ming, and the poem is called Assumptions, and it's about how her son was treated after an accident. Was the moped stolen? Were you smoking cannabis? Are you in a gang? 
On the 29th of April, my teenage son had a moped accident. My husband and I took him to A&E. I was tired. We had been waiting for a while and it was getting late. The nurse called my son into the treatment room, asked him some questions and looked at his injuries. She explained that he would need to have an x-ray to make sure there were no further injury. He would need to see the doctor. As we entered the treatment room, the doctor puffed up her chest and stood tall. Was the moped stolen? Were you smoking cannabis? Are you in a gang? What would make her say that? People have been making assumptions about me for as long as I can remember. From the clothes that I wear, to the style of my hair, from the colour of my skin and even my upbringing. Why do you judge me? Why do you judge me? Is it because I don't have a degree? Is this why you don't see me? You believe I'm not educated to the same level. Maybe this is why there's a disparity. I turn the radio to a reggae station. You turn and say, how can you listen to this rubbish? Because you don't understand the word they say. Should I be ashamed of my culture? Should I be ashamed to be me? What's wrong with society? Always judging on how I'm supposed to be. You said my face did not fit. At first I did not understand. But as I grow older, I can see through your plan, trying to oppress and keep me down. I see you looking at me like you see an alien. Must I remind you that I too am human? All I ask is for you to respect me for who I am. That's right, a beautiful, strong, black woman. That's right, I said it. After all, everything I have been through, accused, abused, and still I choose to rise like Maya Angelou. Still I rise. So brothers and sisters, my advice to you, stand tall, be proud of who you are, embrace your culture, nurture your heritage. As the great legend Bob Marley once said, don't let them change you or even rearrange you.